The world has been living with the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV, for more than 40 years now. In the 1980s and 90s, the virus that causes AIDS became a thing to be feared for people in the LGBTQ community, who also became a scapegoat for its existence. The lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Gays are being called a dangerous and violent group that corrupts children and infects the community with AIDS. Many gay men died from it and fought against it alone. A community forced alone to try to figure out how to deal with this extraordinary medical disaster. Things have changed since then in the treatment and prevention of HIV and AIDS. But what was once seen as an infection that affected mostly men in the LGBTQ community is now widely spread. And in some countries, infections are higher among women. HIV is still the leading cause of death of women of childbearing age, especially in Southern Africa, which has the world's highest infection rate. Four decades later, Activists around the world have learned that this epidemic is also a battle for access to sexual and reproductive health care. And it's still a fight against stigma. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we'll explore two different places that have been fighting a similar battle. One is the southern United States, where HIV infections are the worst in the country. And the other has the biggest and most high-profile HIV epidemic in the world, South Africa. I'm Dazon Dixon-Jallo, and I'm the founder and president of Sister Love Incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia, and Sister Love International South Africa in Johannesburg. Dazon founded Sister Love as a group for women interested in educating the Atlanta area about HIV prevention and safer sex techniques. So we wanted her to tell us more about how the virus affects women and people in the southern states of the U.S., but also globally. You've been working with sexual and reproductive justice in the U.S. since 1989, specifically in the city of Atlanta, where your group Sister Love is based. What was the state of the epidemic at that time? And what was it like to start an organization then? I think it was a little subdued for the earlier part of it because it was so centralized with our local gay community at the time. So it was invisible for a while, but nonetheless, there were people who were being diagnosed and people who were dying. I have four friends that have died. I have two friends that are dying. This is not a benign disease, nor is it limited to gays. And for me, what I did know was that if it was transmitted sexually by men, women have sex with men, then it was a sexual and reproductive health issue for us. And that's why we started, so we could prove to people that it was going to be detrimental for real for Black and brown women simply because of the state of our sexual and reproductive health, the disparities that we already walk with. So 40-plus years later, experts are still saying that stigma is one of the main reasons why people are contracting HIV. You've been quoted as saying that stigma is really the Trojan horse 
of this epidemic. What do you mean by that? Why is that? What I mean by stigma being this Trojan horse is that I think it's a nice, neat, packaged way to describe how people are being treated, but how people are being treated not only because of HIV and the ignorance that comes with it, but being treated because of the differences that they may walk with, whether it's because of racism or because of sexism or homophobism or transphobism, or even if it's about xenophobism, that there are all kinds of systems of discrimination and oppression that exacerbate how people living with HIV are treated. So it doesn't really suffice it for me to say we're going to tackle stigma if we're not tackling the real evils, quite frankly, that continue to help us discriminate against people and to exacerbate the epidemic of HIV because people are afraid of how they'll be treated if they talk about their status. Dazon shared an example about how the fear of stigma can prevent people from seeking medication that can protect them from the virus. For example, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. PrEP is a preventative option that helps reduce the risk of getting HIV up to 99% by taking a daily pill. So a young transgender man, doesn't matter who he has sex with, he's a transgender man who needs an HIV test, who wants to get his pap smear for his annual reproductive health exam, and he wants to talk about contraception and pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it takes him five clinics, five providers, three of them private, two of them public clinics, before he actually comes to the same clinic where I used to work in the early 80s that actually had a trans clinic that was really working hard to provide services to people based on their needs and not on who they are. The stigma that comes with HIV is not just about HIV. It's about all of these intersectional differences that I walk with. I want to talk about regional differences that we see. So... Southern states in the U.S. account for over 51% of new HIV cases annually. And that's even though just 38% of the U.S. population lives in the region. So why are these numbers like this? Well, the real thing about the South is that it is actually the poorer region of the country. It has the larger collective population of Black Americans in the country. We have legislatures that don't offer the funding in the state budgets that's needed. So this region is heavily dependent on the federal government. And it's also a region where we don't have all of the same resources, even in the private corporate sector and foundation world, that many other places have had to directly address the epidemic. Aside from that, there's not a whole lot that we do differently in the South than anybody else does with regard to their sexual behavior, with regard to how they engage around HIV. It's about having less resources and less access to the right things that are needed to prevent HIV. Dazon says that resources are not only related to having access to prevention tools like condoms or PrEP or testing for HIV and STIs, but they're also connected with what they call in the public health sector, social determinants of health. 
These are all the different things in society that either help advance or actually inhibit people's best health outcomes. So if you don't have the social safety nets, housing, transportation to get to and from the medical visits, if you don't have a quality of life that equalizes access to those implements, then you're more likely to get HIV. There are people who specialize in helping marginalized communities understand those social determinants of health. Justin Smith is one of them. My name is Justin Smith, and I am the director of the Campaign to End AIDS at Positive Impact Health Centers, which is an HIV service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia. Justin's focus of work is to develop strategies to end the HIV epidemic in Atlanta. We actually have the second highest rate of HIV diagnosis in the country, right behind Washington, D.C. And that's the reason why DeKalb County, part of the Atlanta metropolitan area, is included as a jumpstart location for a national program to end the HIV epidemic in the United States. However, Justin says that Georgia has one of the weakest public health infrastructures in the country and that the state hasn't expanded Medicaid, a program that supports health insurance for people with low income, which impacts not only HIV diagnosis and treatment, but other health conditions. Another reason that we experience such a high rate of HIV diagnosis is that we haven't been able to fully implement all of the strategies that we know prevent HIV transmission. One is helping people who are living with HIV attain what we call viral suppression. Viral suppression is uh, a state at which someone who's living with HIV does not have HIV replicating in their bloodstream. That is the goal of HIV therapy. The benefit is that once someone reaches undetectable status, it's great for their own health, but it also has the benefit of making them unable to transmit the virus to other people. Another reason why numbers are so high in Georgia is that vulnerable communities are not taking PrEP. Justin says that in many cases, a lot of people that don't have health insurance need it to get PrEP. Or perhaps their health insurance won't fully cover the tests for STIs and HIV, which are required to be on the medication. Our uptake of PrEP, particularly in Black gay and bisexual men, Black women, Latino gay and bisexual men, has been really low. And so without the coverage of those really important interventions, we're not going to be able to achieve success in HIV in the South or really anywhere else in the United States, frankly. And then there are also other aspects of HIV within society that exacerbate stigma in the South. So what a lot of people don't know is that there are about 35 states in the United States that have laws on the books that criminalize the transmission of HIV. Meaning that in many places, if someone who's living with HIV does not disclose that they are living with HIV to their sexual partners or their needle-sharing partners, they can be charged with a felony. And in many places, the law does not require that HIV transmission actually took place, only that the person did not disclose that they were living with HIV. Justin thinks these laws are problematic because in a way, they can discourage people from wanting to get tested for the virus. 
It inhibits the types of honest conversations that we know are necessary to make sure that everyone can do what they need to do to make sure that they're protecting their health and the health of the people in their communities. In 2019, the federal government announced a plan to reduce HIV infections by 90% in the U.S. by the year 2030. For many on the advocacy side of HIV prevention, the goal is unrealistic and needs adjustments. I do think that it will be possible to end the HIV epidemic in the South. However, it will require that all Southern states expand the Medicaid program. The second thing is that we will not be able to end the HIV epidemic anywhere in the country unless we end the HIV epidemic in communities of color. Part of the strategy is around making sure that organizations that have the trust and respect of Black and Latino communities in the South receive resources to be able to increase their ability to reach those communities that they're already reaching. Dezan Dixon Diallo from Sister Love in Atlanta agrees with Justin. She thinks that local organizations should not only receive resources, but that leaders and communities of color should have a seat at the table too. Most of the people who make the decisions that impact everyone's lives don't look like the people whose decisions they impact. They are predominantly white, they are predominantly rich, and they are predominantly male. And they don't see or feel what happens in our communities. I absolutely think that a plan to end HIV is possible, but the only way you're gonna do it is when you center it with the women, especially black women. When you center it where the people who are suffering the most have the opportunity to lead. That's how we're going to get to the end. So, Dezon, your work goes beyond just the United States. You founded a sister love expansion in South Africa in 1999. Tell us how HIV and AIDS is shaping women's futures there. So the work for us in South Africa right now is mostly focused on adolescent girls and young women. And it's focused on that population because not only in South Africa, but in sub-Saharan Africa, when you're looking at the age group between, let's say, 15 and 25 of all people in sub-Saharan Africa, 78% of the people in those age groups living with HIV are girls and women. And that is a mirror of the situation in South Africa. So your very question about what this portends for the future of women in South Africa, is huge. Dezan says that on many occasions, poverty is the main driver of HIV infections. And in South Africa, when it comes to the prevalence of HIV in adolescents and young women, research has pointed to a phenomenon called sugar, or sponsor relationships, commonly known as sugar daddies or blessers. Scientists believe intergenerational relationships are driving a cycle of infections, And in South Africa, sugar daddies have become public enemy number one. Zero tolerance for men. We put adolescent girls at risk for HIV. You know, we think of sugar daddies or those sponsor-type relationships of older men, 40, 50, 60, preying on teenagers or very young women. So young girls date older men and have condom-free transactional sex. So transactional sex being a lot different from sex work, 
because sex work is usually a cash transaction, but transactional sex might be for a ride to school, might be for books, might be for uniforms. Today, these types of relationships are not exclusive to older men. That trend has changed. And so the language has changed. What sugar daddies really means some of those older people, the blessers, are the younger people who may be only eight or nine or 10 years older, but they still have means. They still have a car. They still have cash or transact for sexual pleasure with young people. And that becomes a cycle because they're also dating women in their same age who may have become infected because they were dating as younger people, older men. So it's this very uh, nuanced dynamic of how HIV transmits that is almost solely related to poverty and lack of access to basic needs and gender-based sexual, I would say, exploitation simply because of the age difference, then that exploitation is exacerbated by poverty. When I was the young woman, I diagnosed HIV positive. That's Noteyatiambo Makapela. She works for Dezan as a program officer for Sister Love International in South Africa. For me, doing this work, it's personal. It's about my everyday living experiences. Notia Tiambo says that her HIV diagnosis has motivated her to empower women in South Africa. I don't want young women to get exposed to HIV infections because they are lacking knowledge. So one of my goals as a woman is living with HIV is to make sure that I educate, I inform, I also prepare adolescent girls and young women for them to know that we have various different methods of HIV prevention. Today, she and her team work directly with community members and young girls in villages in South Africa, teaching workshops about safe sex practices. One of our main goals when we do this work is to educate, is to prepare. And also we need to make sure that we capacitate communities and so that they are informed about the prevention measures that are available in South Africa, and then focusing on adolescent girls and young women, but not forgetting their male counterparts because they are having sexual partners. For her, the work should be focused on women having power and rights when it comes to sexual relationships. It's about eradicating a power imbalance in sexual relationships, making sure that women have voices in terms of the choices that they want to make when it comes to HIV prevention. Let's make sure that government in South Africa develops HIV female prevention method that is going to talk to us in our diversity. When I say in our diversity, I'm saying that meaningfully, not thinking that a female condom is everything that we need as women. There are women who are in same-sex relationships, who are in relationships with people living with HIV. South Africa is one of the countries with the highest rates of sexual violence. A study from 2016 says that one in five children are victims of sexual abuse in the country. Notia Tiambo thinks sex education in schools should be a priority for children. Children are engaging to sexual intercourse. They are being violated sexually within their homes. We need to talk about sex and the consent to sexual intercourse. We want to challenge the perpetrators of sexual violence because they are making our life miserable as women. 
it's not about the number of sexual partners that we have, but it's about the universal messaging that says each person is responsible for her or his own prevention to, from STIs and HIV. But the access to those prevention tools might have been interrupted by another virus, COVID-19. There could be several ways this global pandemic has affected HIV prevention and diagnosis around the world. We asked Dazon about this. So I think the jury is still out because the data comes in so slowly. It takes about two to three years to really get good epidemiological data on a given disease. But what we have seen an increase is in domestic violence, in sexual violence. And then during the COVID-19 pandemic, many either countries or local governments determined that sexual and reproductive health services weren't necessarily essential services. Eliminating or reducing access to the clinics that deliver HIV care, HIV testing, contraception, all of those things went into a slowdown during the harshest parts of the lockdowns all over the world. But for right now, we haven't seen a significant increase anywhere in HIV as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But some of the other things that help exacerbate HIV, we have seen some increases. So it might bear to expect. This is, this sounds like your life work, especially since you've been doing this since you were 21 years old. Why do you do the work? Why do you do what you do? I think I was fortunate, if that's the word, blessed, to know my purpose early. My purpose was to just know when you're in the right place to do the right thing. And what I learned is what I'm supposed to do is create the spaces that people need to get their needs met. I am in it to win it, doggone it, because I know that when we win HIV, that we have hit a dent in racism, we have hit a dent in sexism, we have hit a dent in poverty, we have created systems of care for people where they didn't have care before, and more important than that, we have established once and for all that the right to living for all people must have quality, must have dignity, and must have justice. You cannot end an epidemic You can't end this pandemic, the one that we're sitting in. You can't end any of that without having that idea and without having that kind of fight, knowing that it's going to be a fight, but knowing that it is a fight worth fighting. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Priyanka Tilve, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Special thanks to Damon Jacobs, Robert Suttle, Sybil Miller, and Tato Puti. We'll be back. <laughs> 